Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. We're going to read uh, verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Uh, and uh, as you, most of you know by now, it's our practice to stand when we read God's Word. So if you are able, uh, let me ask that you do that now. Let's stand together. Uh, While he, that is the lame man who's just been healed, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom... You delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, his ma- his, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you. From your wickedness. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would uh, be at work, uh, that you would uh, pierce our hearts, that you would open our ears, that you would loosen our lips, that you would uh, enlighten our minds, that we might hear, know, understand your word and that you would use it to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. So, um, we have a new alarm clock in our house. Uh, We have a a nine-month-old golden retriever, Mr. Bingley. Um, he's now Mary Lyles' alarm clock. 
Uh, Mary Lyles has moved upstairs. The boys are gone. She's sort of commandeered their room, and she's slowly migrating uh, up to that spot. And uh, now I can stand at the bottom of the stairs and just point up the stairs and say, um, go get her. And he literally will run up the stairs and go get her. Push the door open. She doesn't close it all the way because she likes this alarm clock. It's a whole lot better than any of the other ones she's got. Um, so I've long held that the, the, the worth of a dog is, is determined primary. You can really tell a dog's brain and training if he can follow a point. If you can point in a direction and he looks in that direction, then that's a sign of a dog with some brains. Usually, they just kind of look at your hand. Like, right, you point... And that looks like a snack or a treat. And so, well, I'm just going to look at your hand. And they don't understand the concept of this finger means look that way. You and I are called to point. And we want people not to look at our hands, but to look where we're pointing. That's what Peter is doing in this passage. Peter finally sort of reaches out and goes, no, 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 you're looking in the wrong place. If you think I'm the reason that this guy who appears to be like literally like he's grabbed Peter's arm and John's arm and he's not letting them go. That's sort of the image you have of him at this point in the in the account. He said, hold on, you're looking at us as though we're the reason for this guy being able to walk now. I know he's over 40. I know he was lame from birth. I know he's never ever walked. And I know that he was fully and completely healed just a few minutes ago. He came in, joined us for prayer. And now as we're leaving, you're all gawking at this. And Peter said, if you're looking at us, you're looking in the wrong place. And so he points. And the goal is to get the people not to look at his hand, but to look where he's pointing. That's the role of the believer. That's the role of the church is to point people not to ourselves, but to Christ and to do so with a message. And and Peter accompanies his pointing with a word, an explanation, a message about this pointing. And so what is that message? To whom or to what? To whom is Peter pointing. Notice he's pointing to the promised Jesus. Look at verse 13. He begins with the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. And in that moment, everyone within earshot of Peter's voice, his ears perk up. He knows exactly what, uh, what Peter's saying. Wait, I know those names. Those are the patriarchs. Those are the fathers of Judaism. Abraham is sort of the, the model uh, of Jew as far as we're concerned. In their minds, Abraham had primarily was saved by his obedience to the command to be circumcised. And so in their minds, he's sort of represents, go and be circumcised. You and, Okay, well then, let's do that. And if we do that, then we're part of Israel too. 
Paul will even make a connection later. Not all Israel are Israel. Just because you're genealogically connected doesn't mean you actually belong. That actually the true Israel is is Israel by faith, not by circumcision, not by works. And so Peter points first to the fact that Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of their fathers, the God of the patriarchs, is at work in their world. He's the the cause of what's going on here. He's the one behind this man's healing. It's not us. And the implication is, this shouldn't be a surprise to you because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all envisioned Jesus. They see, understand, they understand and see that Jesus is really the fulfillment of those promises made to Abraham. If you were here when we preached through the book of Genesis, we kept sort of pointing out over and over again, there are three promises that God made to Abraham. The promise of, of a place, of His presence, and of people. And so Peter says, look, this, is, this Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Of that promise. He's connecting with his audience, but he's doing more than just connecting with his his audience. Because this name, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, was actually used by God when speaking to Moses from the burning bush. Oh, Moses also, verse 22 and 23, Moses also speaks of Jesus. Notice what he said. He, he reaches back and, and quotes from the Old Testament and says that Moses says, look, there's going to be a prophet that God's going to raise up like me from among the people. And if you listen to him, there's life. And if you don't, there's death. You remember Moses was a prophet. He had the privilege of of getting God's revealed will and being the messenger of that revealed will to Israel as they were traveling from Egypt to the promised land. That's the role of a prophet, to speak for God to the people. To be the mouthpiece of God, as it were. And in Deuteronomy 18 which Peter quotes right here, Moses anticipates a greater prophet, a better prophet, a better mouthpiece of God. Oh, the prophets also talk about Jesus. Notice what Peter says in verse 24. All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel onwards... They've all talked about these days. They've all talked about Jesus. They've all told us that, that, that the Messiah was coming. They've all told us that the Savior would come and fulfill all the law and fulfill all that the Old Testament anticipated. And He would suffer. You and I know Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray, astray, each has turned in his own way. I mean, we know Isaiah 53. That's just one of four 
suffering servant songs that Isaiah talks about, that Isaiah sings or writes for us. The suffering of Jesus shouldn't have been a surprise. The, the promise, the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament anticipated is found in Jesus. We don't, um, for multiple reasons, we don't do Advent sermon series every single year. Uh, part of that's because of my own just sort of, uh, just how many times can you preach some of the same passages over and over again? Um, but when you do, or if you go to a really good lessons and carols service, uh, like for Christmas Eve or at some point during the Christmas season, you'll read Micah. You'll read Isaiah. You'll read the prophets that anticipate, but you, Bethlehem. Hey, wait a minute. Jesus was born there. That's Micah 5. The prophets speak of the coming Savior. So Peter's point, I said it a couple of weeks ago. I'm saying it again here. We'll say it again um, probably a few more times before this series is over. The Old Testament is about Jesus. It's not about Israel. It's not about the law. It's not about a mean, hateful ogre God who suddenly becomes a gracious God in the New Testament. And it's certainly not about the United States. It's about Jesus. And Peter is actually giving his people the key to unlocking, to understanding their Bibles. That's why, by the way, Peter and John are in the stated prayer meeting in the temple at three o'clock in the afternoon. It's because they don't see themselves as this vastly different, suddenly, drastically, world-changing, different religion that just suddenly appeared on the scene out of nowhere. They see themselves, and I'm, I don't, you have, to, you have to understand what I mean by this. They see themselves as better Jews. I don't mean that they're looking down on the Jews. What I mean is, if Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament is anticipating, is all that the Old Testament law anticipates, is the greatest prophet, is the better temple, is the better Moses, is the better revelation, all that Hebrews writes to us, then they're not really that drastically different. They just see Jesus themselves as the fulfillment. And they want to explain and teach that to the people around them. The Old Testament points to the Messiah, and Jesus is that Messiah. So our message, we, we point to the promised Jesus. But we also point to a suffering Jesus. Notice verse 18. What God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer. Again, the, the servant songs of Isaiah anticipate the fact that, that he's going to bear the burdens. He's going to bear the iniquities 
of God's people. And that means suffering and death. You do realize that the Jews anticipated a Messiah, um, a, a sword-wielding, horse-riding, armor-bearing, army-forming deliverer. Let's kill Rome and get rid of this oppressive Rome who's keeping the Israelites, keeping the Jews under this oppression, and, and then we get to be the ones in charge now. That's what they wanted. That's what they expected. That's what they anticipated. And Jesus comes with a towel around his waist and a bowl of water to wash the feet of his disciples. Jesus comes and says, I've come really not to be served, but to serve. And to bear the sins, to bear the iniquities of many, to be a ransom, to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus' suffering shouldn't have been a surprise because the Old Testament anticipated that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. But look at the suffering he had to endure. Look at verses 13 through 15. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one. His own people, many of them right here in the temple. You realize, I mean, we're like eight weeks later. I mean, we're not talking. You and I have this notion that we start Acts 1 And all of a sudden, there's this huge time shift. We've gone through some, I don't know, wormhole, time tunnel thing, and we're in a complete... We're talking weeks. We're talking your summer vacation. We're talking summer break between the end of school to the beginning of school, the next school year. We're talking that kind of time frame. The very people who said crucify Him are right there in the temple. They're gathered around Peter going, what is this guy doing walking? You crucified him. You are the ones that had him nailed to the cross. You denied him. When Pilate said, I I can't find any guilt in him. You said, we don't care. We find guilt in him. Kill him. Make sure he dies. Get rid of him. In fact, verse 14 and 15. You freed somebody who had taken life in order to take the life of someone who gives life. You freed a murderer so that the author of life could die. The second person of the Trinity took on flesh, became man, lived under the law that He gave, that He wrote, was subject to that law, was subject to the the government of the Jewish leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, was subject to Roman government, the, the civil government at the time, and then kept the law perfectly in every way possible, never once broke it, never once violated, never once looked at mom and dad and say, no, I'm not going to go clean my room. 
never once disobeyed, never once violated the law in any way, shape, or form, and yet went to the cross and suffered and died, not for His sins, for ours. And then was taken off the cross and put in a tomb, buried. Not to mention the worst of it, that He actually bore the wrath and curse of God for His people. What does every sin deserve? The wrath and curse of God. Let me encourage you to learn your catechisms. It's a great tool for understanding the faith. And Peter says, it shouldn't surprise us that, that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer. It was promised even in the Old Testament. So we see the promised Messiah, the suffering the promised Jesus, the suffering Jesus. But notice that that's not where the story ends. Jesus doesn't stay in that tomb. Notice verse 15. He says, You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Have you seen the Night of the Museum movies? Um, the second one, uh, in the second Night of the Museum movie, um, there's this uh, ancient Egyptian pharaoh guy that shows back up on the scene. Uh, his name is Kamun-Ra. Um, and it, there's this, he does this whole dramatic scene about um, coming back to life. I'm Kamun-Ra, I was dead, and I've come back to life. And, and he, he says it dramatically, and the movie tries to depict it uh, dramatically, and, and the characters around there just blank. And he's like, I don't think you understand. He's, let, let me try this again. I have come back to life. And he, because you see, when you hear about somebody dead coming back to life, that should elicit some sort of reaction. Because... That doesn't happen very often. I don't think I've ever. I guess I've never seen it. Y'all ever seen this? I mean, like, is this a normal occurrence for y'all that I'm sort of left out? That people coming back to you know the resurrected body? Oh yeah, that happens all the time. I've known a bunch of people that have done. Nobody said anything when Peter said that. If it wasn't true, the crowd would have become a mob. If there had been somebody there who said, uh, whoa, 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 hold on, Peter. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You just said that God raised him from the dead. Hold on a second. Give us a minute. Hey, Bill, run back to the storage room. We've got his body. Go get it and bring it out. Nobody says that. Nobody says, no, 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 hold on. That's not true. He's still buried. We can... Peter, come. Let me just go show you the tomb. You went to the wrong tomb. I know you think you saw an empty one, but you didn't. There's a wrong one. Nobody says a word. Why not? They couldn't argue with it. It's true. None of them could say, but, 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 hold on a second. That's not true, Peter. Here's the body. That's not true, Peter. He's still dead. That's not true. They all knew it. Nobody could argue with Peter on that point. 
the resurrection wasn't true, that was their opportunity to disprove it. And to put an end to Christianity once and for all. And part of Peter's point here is that the reason this man can walk, as we said last week, that's an invasion of the world to come into this one. That kind of healing is what we expect in the life to come. It might happen here. We expect it there. It's guaranteed there. When there's no more sin, no more, no more deformities, no more people born lame and unable to walk, no more effects of sin, no more dealing with the, the fallen, broken world. All that's that life. The reason this man can walk is because Christ's body is from that life. Christ has a resurrected body. He has a a new creation body. Can you recognize Him as Jesus? Apparently so. Can you not recognize Him as Jesus? Apparently so. Can He get into a room when the doors are locked and the windows are off? Apparently so. But could Thomas actually touch the scars? Apparently so. I don't know what that means. I don't know how that works. We'll see that one day. But part of Peter's point is that because Christ has experienced experienced bodily resurrection and glorification, He can now give that even to this man in this life. And so this man experiences a taste of the life to come, of that kind of healing because Christ having already been glorified, having received His glorified new creation body, can can give that to this man. We see a promised Christ, a suffering Christ, a glorified Christ. But I want you to lastly see a gracious Christ. Quick poll of all the people you know. What's the worst crime someone could commit? Top two, For those of you that think more than two or three minutes, top two or three. If you think for half a second, it's probably number one. My guess is murder is in everybody's top two or three. So what if... Someone murdered the incarnate Messiah. What about the people who took the second person of the Trinity in the flesh and said, you know what, we're going to let the murderer go free and kill this guy instead. Surely those people, the people who would be willing to say crucify him at Jesus would be kind of towards the top of worst crimes possible that people could commit. But look at verses 19 and 20. You killed him, verse 15. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back 
that your sins may be blotted out. The, the sin that you and I think of, the crime that you and I think of as the worst possible, Peter just offered forgiveness for those people. Was it for crimes that I have done? He suffered on the tree. That's what we just sang. The answer is yes. It's exactly why he suffered on the tree. It's exactly why he was nailed to the cross. It was for crimes that you and I have committed. Okay, we weren't there holding a hammer, but our sin put him there. Maybe you're thinking you just don't you just don't know. I mean, you don't know my past. You don't know my present. You don't know what I'm hiding from people. You don't know the things I think. You don't know the things I've done. You got no idea. It's bad. It's really bad. Peter looks at you and says, "Repent." Turn back. That your sins might be hopefully maybe dealt with. That your sins might, for the most part, kind of... I mean, if we can give it a good smudging, right? right? You, you get a little permanent marker on your hand and you, you just scrub and scrub and scrub until it kind of smears and it just, it's not as bad as it was. But, you know, you, just, you keep scrubbing and maybe... Blotted out. Gone. Removed, forgotten, separated as far as east is from west, the prophets. Thrown behind God's back, the prophets. Here's the thing. The same forgiveness offered to these people who physically stood there in Pilate's courtyard and said, we want the murderer to walk. And we want innocent Jesus dead now. Those people, the same forgiveness offered to them is offered to us. That our sins might be, hopefully, maybe, probably dealt with, blotted out. That's the hope. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the message that we as a church have for the world. They look at us. We need to be quick to point. And we hope, we want, we pray, we encourage, we admonish that they look not at our hands, but in the direction that we're pointing. That as we point to Christ, they look and see Him. And not us. They look and see Him as the Redeemer, the Savior, the Messiah. Promised before the foundation of the world. Promised through the prophets. Promised through all of Scripture. Suffering in our place. Glorified, raised from the dead. Glorified in a glorified body. Even today, offering forgiveness and salvation to all who will repent, turn from sin, turn in faith to Christ. And there find their sins blotted out forever. Let's pray together. Our great God and our King, we pray that that is the message we would proclaim to the world around us. 
Uh, We pray that we would uh, be faithful uh, to point away from ourselves as Christians, as individuals, that we would point away from ourselves as a church, uh, that we would point to Christ and that people would follow our finger and look to Him and repent and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Would you use us to that end? Would you grow your kingdom in that way, even through us? Not that we would receive the honor and the glory, but that the glory might be yours. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.